Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with HowStuffWorks, and I love all things tech. And we're continuing our story about Cambridge Analytica and also continuing Jonathan's slow descent toward laryngitis. I'm all right at the moment. I got my cup of water with me, but I am recording this immediately after recording the previous two episodes of Tech Stuff. So if I start getting particularly raspy, I apologize, but it's because my health is slowly failing. In our last episode, I talked about how two old Etonians, first Nigel Oakes and later Alexander Nix, formed a company that depended heavily on psychological information of questionable utility to form a consulting company that would take that data and create action items for clients. They focused mainly on political clients, with Nix's push to focus more exclusively on elections. And I ended just as the organization they created, Strategic Communication Laboratories, or SCL, had spun off a new entity backed by uh, American billionaires, and this new entity was called Cambridge Analytica. That entity incorporated in Delaware on December 31st, 2013, so the very last day of 2013. Before incorporating, Nix had led a few attempts to get cozy with American politics, but things had not really gone well. The Republican candidate for governor of Virginia was Ken Cuccinelli, and a political action committee supporting Cuccinelli had hired SCL. Now remember, this was this was before Cambridge Analytica had become an official thing. Uh, SCL was supposed to create a list of voters who could be persuaded to support Cuccinelli. That was what they were contracted to do. But the deadline came and went, and still no list. And eventually, the political action committee, the PAC, cut ties with the firm, saying, well, you're not delivering upon your promise, so we're not going to do business anymore. But SCL had also worked with another PAC in Virginia, also supporting Cuccinelli. This one was called the Americans for Limited Government, and they wanted SCL to provide the group with a list of women voters from suburban areas who traditionally would vote Democrat, but who were thought to possibly flip Republican. So SCL eventually produced a list of women and handed it over. But upon closer inspection, it turned out that this was a list of Republican supporters, not flippable Democrats. So in other words, it was people that already were kind of promising to vote that way. So SCL and Nix had not performed very well in 2013. And if the Mercers had learned about that, the billionaires who had backed uh, decided to to help form Cambridge Analytica, maybe they wouldn't have funded the founding of Cambridge Analytica if they had known about those failures. Steve Bannon became a driving force behind the scenes at Cambridge Analytica. Uh, he was the uh, executive over at Breitbart News at the time. According to Chris Wiley, that's the data analyst who had uh, first come on board in order to look into using data from various sources to support SCL's efforts and was the one to recommend going toward uh, using social media and apps similar to the one that um, that Stillwell had created back over at the University of Cambridge. Uh, he said that 
Bannon was really interested in using social media and messaging as a way to wage psychological warfare, to push a particular political philosophy. And in fact, to quote Wiley, he said Cambridge Analytica was, quote, Bannon's arsenal of weaponry to wage a culture war on America using military strategies, end quote. He said Bannon was absolutely fascinated with the idea of using military tactics to wage a political war in in a campaign. The Mercers, meanwhile, used their leverage as wealthy GOP backers to convince many different campaigns to actually go ahead and make use of Cambridge Analytica. So out of the eight federal-level clients that Cambridge Analytica won in 2013 and 2014, the, the clients they landed, out of all eight of them, all eight were receiving financial backing from the Mercers. So how about that? So for example, in 2014, Robert Mercer donated $1 million to John Bolton's super PAC. And then that same super PAC went and hired Cambridge Analytica for consulting work to the tune of $340,000. Kind of odd. The reviews of the work that Cambridge Analytica were uh, returning, the reviews were not great. They weren't spectacular. Uh, Apart from one U.S. Senate race in North Carolina, that one was pretty positive about Cambridge Analytica. But a lot of other reports were saying they aren't really delivering upon what they promised, but the hype continued. Nix was really, really good at selling an idea. Never mind that the idea did not really have a lot of solid foundation in academic scholarship or published scientific research or or even proof that their efforts were effective in the field. He was still really selling it. And the company in 2014 began to test certain messages that would later show up in a future campaign. Now, this was during the midterm elections of 2014. And the messages that they were testing out in different regions appeared to be firmly rooted in Steve Bannon's philosophy. So this is when we started seeing phrases like build a wall or drain the swamp. They were being tested at that time in 2014 among different Republican populations. Messages that were critical of immigrants and ones that criticized big government would roll into rotation and test out. And the company also began testing the waters to see what the general opinion among Republican voters was about a certain Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia. And this was all during those midterms of 2014, years before they would be used in greater uh, rollouts in 2016. In 2015, Ted Cruz announced his candidacy for president, although that announcement did not go as planned. Uh, So his campaign, before they had announced that it was a campaign, had secured the services of Cambridge Analytica to design the campaign website, the official website for Ted Cruz running for president. It did not start off great. So Ted Cruz sends out a tweet before midnight, the day before he's going to announce his candidacy. And it's a very teasing tweet. Everyone knew what it really meant because there there was no shortage of uh, uh, pundits out there saying Ted Cruz was going to, to put his name in the ring for president. But the official announcement had not yet happened. And he said, just wait, it's gonna come really soon. And it what was supposed to happen was one minute after midnight, the official campaign website was supposed to launch. But his team couldn't get the website to work. They couldn't get it live. 
once again, a product from Cambridge Analytica was not performing the way people expected. So several minutes after midnight, Cruz would announce his candidacy on Twitter. So so didn't get to share the link to the official campaign website. It was not live yet. He just went ahead and announced it on Twitter because the plan was not going according to plan. Uh, initially, a dozen Cambridge Analytica employees were on the staff with the Cruz campaign, but apparently the company consistently failed to deliver results. And so that number was whittled down to three as the campaign continued. Cambridge Analytica broke down Cruz's target audience into four categories. Temperamental people, relaxed leaders, timid traditionalists, and stoic traditionalists. This was based off the data the company had gathered about those potential voters. And the company had also created suggested messaging for each group, saying, well, this target group, this type of messaging will work most effectively. But for this other group, you want to go with this different approach. And the whole idea was that they were targeting psychological anchor points that would give Cruz's campaign the advantage. Now, Cruz's campaign made use of data that Cambridge Analytica had gathered using uh, Alexander Kogan's Facebook app, the one that had uh, retrieved information about users' friends without those friends' consent. And also, this was in violation of Facebook's policies. You know, Facebook was uh, told that it was going to be an academic research project, and therefore the data was supposed to just stay with Kogan and not change hands. But that's not what happened. Kogan did uh, essentially sell the data from uh, his possession to Cambridge Analytica. So Ted Cruz making use of this data was big news. Uh, Once people heard about it, no one had really known about it at this point, but the information started to leak. And this is a good point to talk about how Facebook shares information among users, if you are a user. Some of you may not use Facebook, but here's how it works. So you've got yourself a news feed, and that's where posts from your friends will show up. And occasionally, you know, posts from advertisers, things like that will show up there too. And you can post your own things to Facebook, pictures, thoughts, whatever, And you probably know there are various privacy settings that you can activate before you post stuff to Facebook. You could choose public. That means anyone who is on Facebook can view that material. Or you can choose different privacy settings. You can set it so that only your friends can read your posts. So anyone who isn't your friend won't see the posts that you've you've put in. You can even exclude specific people, or you can select only specific people to be able to see it. But you get the idea. Well... Until 2015, if you developed an app for Facebook, you could request friends' permission on that app. And that would give you access to view user-friend data. And if a user says, sure, yeah, I'll, uh, I want to use this app, I agree to that, then that would mean you would be able to view that user's friends as if you were that user. In effect, it's like you have just become a friend to all of that user's friends. So let's let's use an example to make this more clear. Let's say that uh, Ben Bolin, Ben Bolin's using Facebook, and Ben Bolin comes across an app that I have made, and he sees and it's an app from before 2015, and he sees that in this app I've said I want to have permission to view your your friends' data, and Ben Bolin, being the 
conniving jerk face that he is and not giving a care about the privacy of his friend's data, says, sure, I want to know what house in Hogwarts I belong to. I want to take this quiz. So he agrees. Then I get to see that uh, all, not just all of Ben Bolin's data, but all of Ben Bolin's friend's data, as if I were Ben Bolin. I get to see all of his friend's data just as if I were him. And I can collect all that data and make use of it. And all because he was so thoughtless. I should give out his email address so that you can send him complaints because he does that to me all the time on his podcasts. But I'm not gonna. Because honestly, Ben Bolin's actually a really nice guy and I like him. But it's great to use him as an example. So this is why that number of people who may have been affected by the Cambridge Analytica scandal is so high at 87 million users, even though reportedly only 270,000 people actually took the survey and agreed to the, the app uh, permissions. And the average Facebook user, you see, has 338 friends. That's that's the average. Some people have more, some people have fewer. But if you multiply 270,000 by 338, you'll get more than 90 million possible friends. And granted, there's bound to be some overlap between different users. I'm honestly always surprised to find friends I know from very different circles who also happen to know each other. But you can see why that 87 million number got there. So in 2015, Facebook would change that policy. These days, if you develop an app, you can still send a friend's permission request, and Facebook will review your app before allowing it to be on the platform. But now, that does not give you access to view all of the friend's data of a user. Instead, what it does is it lets you see a list of friends of that user who also have installed that same app. So you don't get new information about new people. You just, you just get to know about connections between existing people who have already downloaded your app. So you're just, you know, you already have that other user's information because they installed your app already. Um, so it's a very different policy. Well, when I come back, I'll talk more about what Cambridge Analytica did and why it got into so much trouble. But first, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. Cambridge Analytica used all that data to build out psychographic models of potential voters, essentially putting them in these different categorizations. About two months before the Iowa caucus, caucuses and primaries are how we decide which nominees within a party will become the official party nominee for a general election. Uh, if you're not from the United States, it gets pretty confusing. Anyway, about two months before the Iowa caucus, which is one of the, the – it's the first big event that can really set the tone for a nominee, The Guardian ran a story revealing that Cambridge Analytica had possession of unauthorized Facebook data and that therefore the Cruz campaign was depending upon information that was gathered in an unethical way, that they were relying upon information that people did not consent to sharing. Facebook responded to this by telling Cambridge Analytica and Alexander Kogan that they needed to delete all that data. But Facebook really doesn't have any enforceable authority here. The data had already changed hands, first to Alexander Kogan, and then from Alexander Kogan to Cambridge Analytica. Chris Wiley said that at this point, he had already left Cambridge Analytica and he had deleted that data but all he had to do was fill out a little form and click a checkbox, 
and send that on to Facebook to say, hey, yeah, I followed your instructions. But Facebook didn't take any steps to actually verify that. And he says he could have kept all of the data. Facebook, Facebook never would have known. Uh, and, and years later, people said that the information was still available from that time, that information that was gathered by that initial app was still readily available. The New York Times reported the data, at least some of it, was still remaining in use as of 2018. Cruz narrowly won in Iowa, and Alexander Nix was very quick to jump on that news and boast about how his company, how Cambridge Analytica, helped push Cruz to victory, and that Cruz had started in a very low place, like maybe polling at single-digit percentages, although that was not, you know, true. Others on Cruz's campaign staff were not very quick to give any credit to Cambridge Analytica, but Nix was selling his idea to a bigger audience now, and staffers on the campaign were concerned that Cambridge Analytica wasn't forthcoming in how it was coming up with the various categories for voters. They were not transparent in how they were making these determinations. So the campaign staff says, we can't really tell how well we're doing, and we can't even we don't even know how they're coming to these determinations, so we can't judge how well they're doing. In the United States, uh, in order to become a nominee, like I said, you have to participate in these caucuses and these primaries. By the time Cruz's campaign was working in South Carolina, staffers noticed that the data they were getting from Cambridge Analytica was woefully out of date. Cruz would come in third place in South Carolina. And you didn't see Nick's jumping up on the news to talk about that problem. Cruz's campaign stopped relying on Cambridge Analytica shortly thereafter, saying, you know, I don't think this is really working out. I don't think we're getting the return that we were promised. Now, Nix did have the chutzpah to appear at the Concordia Summit and claimed that uh, Cambridge Analytica helped push Ted Cruz to a second-place finish for the Republican nomination. Uh, the story Nix was selling was that Cruz had been so far behind that getting second place was an enormous achievement all by itself and that the only reason he was able to really get there was because Cambridge Analytica was able to, to lift him much further than he was going to go on his own. That's not necessarily an accurate portrayal of what happened, as I understand it from the various reports I've read, but it appeared that that was Alexander Nix's messaging. And his next move was to take aim at the Trump campaign to see if Cambridge Analytica could get hired on to help in those efforts. He had already attempted once before, but Trump was not interested in hiring a political consultant that was already working for one of his opponents. Uh, he had also, around this time, allegedly reached out to Julian Assange. He's the founder of WikiLeaks. Assange had said that he got hold of internal emails from the Clinton campaign and these are the same emails that we later discovered were harvested from a cyber attack that was led by Russian hackers. So Russian hackers attack Clinton's email servers, get access to these emails, and send them to Julian Assange over at WikiLeaks, who then says, hey, I've got these emails. And then Alexander Nix reaches out to Julian Assange and says, I'd really think we should talk about the possibility of making use of this information. According to an article in Mother Jones, Nix really wanted to weaponize those emails, but Assange ended up passing on that offer. Alexander Nix would go on to claim that his company had essentially done all the marketing and messaging for the Trump campaign, that Cambridge Analytica was ultimately responsible for developing the approach Trump used during the whole uh, election, and that Cambridge Analytica effectively won the presidency for Trump. 
and that it was because of Cambridge Analytica's research that Trump was able to target the voters that would swing the election his way. He could lose the popular vote, and he did, by nearly three million votes. But he won in areas that got him the electoral votes he needed to win the presidency. And Alexander Nix said that this was because Cambridge Analytica had done the research and knew who to target, and that's why Trump won. Others in Trump's campaign uh, are not so quick to credit Cambridge Analytica. They dispute these claims. They say that the firm was not instrumental in Trump's messaging and that most of those efforts were being funneled directly into Facebook from the campaign itself rather than through Cambridge Analytica and that the consulting firm had even screwed up some major TV ad deals serving ads in in locations that were a complete bust and that they were handling the campaign in a very amateurish way. So in other words, the story Nix was telling didn't seem to match up with what other people who had been involved in these campaigns had to say about the matter. Steve Bannon, who would become the chief political strategist for Trump, for a while anyway, remained more or less in charge of Cambridge Analytica until April 2017, which was several months after Trump had taken office, which, I don't know, sounds like a conflict to me. By the end of 2017, Cambridge Analytica had withdrawn from pursuing consulting gigs in politics in the U.S. The official reason that Alexander Nix gave was that there was going to be too many other political consulting firms in the mix in 2018, which meant there'd be more sharks in the water, not enough food. It's going to be too competitive, not not lucrative enough. So the company was going to look elsewhere. But a lot of the reports I read were very skeptical of this claim because if, in fact, you were a consulting firm that had just helped a candidate win the position of president of the United States, you would think you could leverage that into being a very lucrative selling point for future campaigns. What these journalists have said is that effectively, Cambridge Analytica had been under-delivering on their, their, their promises regularly, repeatedly, that perhaps those psychographic models that the company had been touting may not have been nearly as effective as the company was suggesting. And that also they had a general lack of knowledge about how U.S. politics work, that these Brits were coming into a U.S. system and they didn't really understand the way politics work in the United States. And that all of this meant that people were viewing Cambridge Analytica as a bad consulting firm for at least for uh, American politics. And it essentially landed the company on a do not hire list for both parties. So the general consensus seemed to be that Trump had won the presidency despite participation of Cambridge Analytica, not because of it. So you got two different stories here. You have Alexander Nix saying, we're not going to get involved in 2018 because there's not enough money in it. And you have everyone else saying, you're not going to get involved in 2018 because nobody wants you. (laughs) 2018 was when things really fell apart for Cambridge Analytica. Over in the United Kingdom, the BBC sent in an undercover reporter to look into SCL and Cambridge Analytica, which were still claiming to be two separate entities, but were operating more or less as a single one. This reporter got, got, got stuff on tape, was able to capture on tape discussions in which Alexander Nix himself talked about spreading misinformation on purpose and even blackmailing political opponents of clients through entrapment. 
essentially by by hiring sex workers to go and and uh, proposition those opponents and then use that as a way of blackmailing those opponents. This got you know came to light. It was published. It it aired, and then Alexander Nix tried to shrug the whole thing off. Said, "Oh no 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 this." I wasn't talking about things we would actually do. I was engaging in this ridiculous hypothetical situation and uh, in a way to try and win a client, but we would never actually do any of that. And a lot of the people that know Alexander Nix say, yeah, this is kind of in line with his approach, anything to land that sale. So would the company have engaged in these behaviors? Maybe not. Maybe that was all talk, but it's not good talk, especially not good talk to have on tape and play out in public. Uh, This, by the way, would end up resulting in Cambridge Analytica suspending Alexander Nix in response to that report coming out. And so he would be suspended as CEO and would effectively be removed from power. Over in the United States, Investigations into Russian interference in the 2016 elections extended over to Cambridge Analytica, and Nix was called to appear before the House Intelligence Committee via video conference, so he didn't have to travel to the states. His testimony was never made public. According to Alexander Nix, he was only asked five questions, and that was a total breeze. Uh, Or maybe it was three questions. He said it was in and out in like five minutes. Also in 2018, the British Parliament called Nix to appear before them to discuss another event that happened in 2016, which was the UK's vote to leave the European Union, also known as Brexit. The general policy at SCL was that they weren't going to get involved in local politics. Remember, SCL and Cambridge Analytica both are located in the UK. But the company had also released a statement saying it was forming a partnership with an organization campaigning in favor of Brexit. But Alexander Nix said his company never actually did any work. Uh, it was something that was uh, announced but never never actually came to fruition, according to Alexander Nix. Investigations into that matter continue because they involve finance issues, about rules about what, where and when money can be spent and how these efforts can be coordinated or not coordinated. It gets really super complicated and it involves another organization that's located out of Canada – an organization that has connections to Chris Wiley, the data analyst who became a whistleblower for Cambridge Analytica. But that probably will merit its own episode, and that investigation is still ongoing. So rather than do a a half-finished episode, I I think I'd rather wait to hear more about it. Well, I do have a little bit more to say about Cambridge Analytica and the fallout that resulted from uh, the various reports. But let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. Chris Wiley would tell The Observer that in July 2014, he and Alexander Nix met with executives of a company called Luke Oil. Luke Oil is the second largest oil company in Russia, and the head of Luke Oil was Vajit Alekporov, who was close friends with a, a guy you might have heard of, a guy named Vladimir Putin. Wiley said to The Observer, that at the time, he was confused why Cambridge Analytica was being called in to have a meeting with a Russian oil company in the first place. I mean, why would an oil company want to know how Cambridge Analytica was targeting and profiling American voters and sending out messaging to American voters? According to an email, 
Alexander Nix had said that the purpose was to explain how their work they were doing in U.S. elections could apply to the Russian oil business, which left Wiley totally at a loss. He said, I, I, I don't see where this connection is. And according to Wiley, the presentation focused on ways to disrupt and affect elections. The entire presentation was really geared up to what Cambridge Analytica was doing with the data that it had in the United States. And that seems to be a pretty strange presentation to give to a petroleum company. Coincidentally, or maybe not so coincidentally, American intelligence indicates that it was right around this time when Russian hackers began targeting social media platforms to plant propaganda and fake stories in an effort to affect elections in the United States, as well as push for Brexit in the UK. So this is where that fake news stuff starts to come in. The the fake news that was planted in social media to rile up different uh, electoral bases. And so the suggestion is that perhaps this meeting between Cambridge Analytica and Lukoil might have sparked this approach. Uh, Cambridge Analytica didn't appear to actually do any work with Lukoil, didn't appear to accept a contract, but it did make this presentation that may have created that inspiration for Russia to interfere with the election through misinformation campaigns using social media as the platform. Whether Cambridge Analytica had any measurable effect on the various elections in the United States remains a matter of debate. It also is not exactly a smoking gun case that the company contributed to Russia's interference with the 2016 election. Cambridge Analytica certainly tried to influence the election. They were hired to try and help various candidates get elected, and some of those candidates did get elected. I mean, that was the whole point of it, but it mostly seems to come across as snake oil to me. I'm sure there's merit in the ideas behind it. I'm sure, I mean, it it seems intuitive that if you know a lot about a person, you can more effectively communicate to that person. But it sounds to me that Alexander Nix was largely more talk than substance when it came to producing results. This is based off the numerous reports I've read and the uh, various sites that have uh, posted people who are familiar with the company and the way it worked. Um, Just drawing those conclusions based on those numerous reports. Now, that doesn't change the fact that the company engaged in some really murky stuff. Leveraging Facebook data without user consent is a huge ethical problem. Though the company has repeatedly denied it did any such thing, despite evidence pointing to the contrary, much of that evidence provided by Chris Wiley. In addition, the mess has really brought into focus Facebook's role. The company did very little to protect user data, and still does very little to protect user data. So why is that? Well, ultimately, the answer comes down to money. You see, user data and privacy are of or data security specifically and privacy, they're a little of concern to Facebook's shareholders. Those are the people who own stock in Facebook. What they want is a return on investment. They want to spend money to own part of Facebook, and then they want Facebook to make way more money so that they get some of that money. So that means they want to see Facebook grow. They want to see it grow in revenue. They want to see it grow in users. They don't care about the quality of the service, as long as it doesn't impact those numbers. Facebook could be a terrible, terrible, terrible experience. But as long as it drove that growth in revenue and in users, 
shareholders aren't going to care because that doesn't Im- that that's not important to them. What's important to them is that return on investment. So Facebook's primary focus has always been on delivering returns, not on creating a better service. And that's something that can happen to any company. I'm not singling Facebook out to say they are particularly at fault here. They follow a very similar pathway that tons of other companies follow. But when it's a company that is gathering tons of personal data about all of us, largely because we're sharing it willingly, but not not just through that, this becomes a concern. And I question Facebook's decision to ever allow developers to create apps that would give those developers access to the data belonging to friends of people who downloaded those apps, friends who had never actually been given the opportunity to say yes or no to having their data shared. I think that's a terrible, terrible policy that had to have ever been in place. And I'm glad that it's gone, but it never should have been there. So it's just not cool to say, hey, uh, I can look at all your information because your buddy Bill said it was okay. Because the rational response to that is, go take a flying leap because Bill does not have the rights to give you permission to look at my information. And yet for years, that's exactly how Facebook allowed developers to create apps. As I mentioned earlier, They've since changed that policy, but it it was ludicrous to have it in the beginning. Not to mention, this awful passing the buck situation has been going on between the various parties involved in this scandal. No one is taking accountability for this. So Facebook's initial response was, hey, it's not our fault. We were told this was for an academic research project, and that met our criteria. So we said, go ahead. It's fine. It's not our fault that they abused that. In fact, we told them to knock it off, as if somehow that makes it okay to share user data without their consent. Then you have Alexander Kogan, whose response was, nothing I did was technically illegal, which might be true, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't unethical, and it was against Facebook's terms of service. Although, again, Kogan had said, I didn't read the terms of service, and clearly Facebook didn't read my terms of service, or else they would have never allowed my app to publish, so everyone is equally at fault because no one reads terms of service. And Cambridge Analytica's response was, hey, all we did was buy data. We didn't specifically hire anyone to scrape information without user consent. So no one is accepting responsibility for this. Uh, and I would argue that they all are at fault in some measure. This story reminds us that there remains out there a gray market, and that gray market is filled with information about us. It's the data we generate as we navigate over the internet. We create it when we post to social media. We create it when we make an online purchase. We leave traces as we move from one website to another in our browsing histories. We created in messages. It's created about us without us even taking active participation. And all of that data has value to it. There are different ways you can use that data. You can use it to sell to people. You can use it for political purposes, as Cambridge Analytica did. And that data is out there on the gray market, and it is for sale. If you have the money, you can buy it. And it's shockingly cheap on an individual basis. It's only when you start talking about it in bulk that it gets really expensive. But that is a disturbing thing to remember. And there's no indication that that's going to go away. As long as the money is there, it's going to stick around. Cambridge Analytica and its sister or parent or whatever company, SCL Elections, 
They are no more. Both entities dissolved in the spring of 2018. And while they no longer exist officially, investigations continue into both companies. And at least in the UK, we may see more efforts to bring charges against individuals who worked for those companies. The United States, it's a little less certain. The House Intelligence Committee had an investigation, but they shut that down. It was an investigation to look into Russian meddling in the U.S. election. That got shut down uh, for reasons that I'm not going to go into because that gets super political and it doesn't really have a place in this podcast. Investigations in the U.S. might come back at some point, but for the moment, it's mostly in the realm of journalism and out of the courts in the U.S. Meanwhile, Alexander Nix and Rebecca Mercer, along with several others uh, who were connected to Cambridge Analytica, ended up organizing to create a new data analyst company called Emmerdata, E-M-E-R-D-A-T-A, that was established in the summer of 2017. And its headquarters are in the same building where Cambridge Analytica was. Now, according to Nigel Oakes, the guy who founded the company that eventually spawned Cambridge Analytica, the whole purpose for Emmerdata was ultimately to acquire Cambridge Analytica and SCL elections together and form a brand new entity. But then everything fell apart, and according to Oaks, all of those organizations are now being wound down in the near future. They're not going to continue on. Uh, That's according to Nigel Oaks. I don't know if that's official, but that's what he says. Kogan's colleague, by the way, who helped build the app was uh, Joseph Chancellor. So Kogan and Chancellor together built the survey and the Facebook application that was at the heart of the United States controversy. And here's a fun fact. Kogan would end up being labeled by Facebook as being a terrible uh, uh, person who had, well, maybe not a terrible person, but a person who had violated the terms of service, that he had created a tool that was in strict violation of Facebook's policies. However, Facebook also hired Joseph Chancellor to work for Facebook. So one of the two developers was pointed at as saying, you're a criminal, and the other one was hired to work for the company. Although, to be fair, Joseph Chancellor no longer works for Facebook. Still, interesting. Probably some sour grapes there, I'm guessing, for Kogan. Probably not terribly happy about that. Anyway, that wraps up the confusing, complicated, sad, and infuriating tale of Cambridge Analytica, a company that I think ultimately was more about promising stuff that it might not have been able to deliver than anything else. But because it was wrapped up in this other issue with Facebook, it definitely was thrust into the spotlight. Otherwise, I think it probably would have just kind of faded out of U.S. politics, at least. Might have still gotten into trouble elsewhere in the world. But in the U.S., people seem to have gotten wise and just felt that it wasn't a valuable asset to have on your team. Interesting stuff. Well, in our next episode, we're going to shine a light on the dark web. Uh, It was a listener request to take a look at what the dark web is and how it works. And then we will conclude the dark and scary week of tech stuff. And we'll, we'll try and talk about fun things next week. Like, I don't know, Furbies or something. I'll figure it out. Tari's nodding. She's like, please... Please pick a happy note. I'm tired of hearing about nuclear power and dark and deceptive politics. If you have suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, whether it's a technology, a person, a company, whatever it may be, 
send me an email. The email address for the show is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle for both of those is techstuffhsw. You should also go on over to tpublic.com slash techstuff. I was looking at your shirt and it's nice, but it's looking like, you know, you could spruce up your fashion a little bit, add some variety there. I know what you need, a Tech Stuff t-shirt. It makes any wardrobe into a fabulous array of clothing. It'll brighten all the other clothes you put in there. See, look, I'm following Cambridge Analytica's lead. I'm making promises I can't deliver upon. But they, no, they really are great shirts. You need to go check them out. tpublic.com slash techstuff. And don't forget, follow us over at Instagram. I'm out, and I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 